Everybody knows the deal is rotten. Old Black Joe's still picking cotton for your ribbons and bows. Everybody knows that the dice are loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. Everybody knows the war. Welcome to the Lifeboat Hour, Sunday, October 25, 2015, and thank you for joining us for the last Lifeboat Hour in this month. We appreciate your listening, and we have a very special show for you tonight because one of my favorite guests and one of my favorite people in the world is here with us again. Before I introduce our guest, I just want to remind our listeners in Northern California, uh, in the areas of Chico, Grass Valley, and Nevada City, that I'll be in your region in the coming week as I continue my Northern California tour. For places and times of appearances, please visit my website at carolynbaker.net. I look forward to seeing all of you. Now, as you know, if you listen to the Lifeboat Hour and follow my website and Facebook page, much of my focus in the last two years has turned to conscious grieving. Grieving for our rapidly withering planet, grieving for personal losses, wars, extinction of species, and every form of injustice imaginable. I've come to believe that not only do we as a species desperately need to grieve these losses consciously, but that the Earth community itself is asking us to do this. Some would say, well, if we're on the way out as a species, why bother grieving? My answer to that is that especially if we are on the way out, the most important thing we can be doing is grieving because of what grieving does for us personally and collectively and perhaps for nature itself. My guest tonight has been on this show twice in 2014 and comes to us again this evening to bring us up to date on his work and his new book, The Wild Edge of Sorrow, Rituals of Renewal and the Sacred Work of Grief. Francis Weller is a psychotherapist, writer, and soul activist. He's a master of synthesizing diverse streams of thought from psychology, anthropology, mythology, alchemy, indigenous cultures, and poetic traditions. Author of The Wild Edge of Sorrow, he's introduced the healing work of ritual to thousands of people. Francis received a Bachelor of Arts from the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay and two master's degrees from John F. Kennedy University in clinical psychology and transpersonal psychology. His writings have appeared in anthologies and journals exploring the confluence between psyche, nature, and culture. His work was featured in the Sun magazine just this month, October 2015, and he's a frequent presenter and keynote speaker at conferences, bringing insight, poetry, and a breath of humor to his talks. Francis is currently on staff at Commonweal Cancer Center Health Program, co-leading their week-long retreats with Michael Lerner. He's taught at Sonoma State University, the Sophia Center in Oakland, and has been the featured teacher at the Minnesota Men's Conference. Francis lives and works in Sonoma County, California. Francis Weller, welcome back to the Lifeboat Hour. Carolyn, it's so good to be back with you. I was looking forward to this all week. (laughs) Well, it's great to hear your voice again. You know, Francis, uh, you say that grief is a thread that binds all living things, including our cultures throughout time. And you write that, quote, the onset of grief following a significant loss initiates a shift in our daily rhythm, unquote, and that when we enter what is known in some cultures or that we have entered uh, in, into what is known in some cultures as a time of living in the ashes. What do you mean by this? Well, I think anyone who's had an acute experience of loss knows that we leave the regular world that we've occupied, uh, the daylight world, and we shift into kind of a parallel world, a world below this world where things are more shadowed, more muted. There's a sense that um, what was is no longer within reach. And things have been reduced 
down to their barest, most essential elements. That's the imagery of ashes. Uh, things are reduced down to the finest, most elemental things when grief is present. Sometimes it's hard to even get up in the day. It's hard to brush our teeth. It's hard to feed ourselves. Grief can have a way of radically altering the way we see, the way we experience, the way we feel, uh, that edge of encounter with, with the world. So, yes, indeed, a time of living in ashes. Um, there's a wonderful quote from an unknown author. I, I like this quote very much. It says, Grief never ends, but it changes. It's a passage, not a place to stay. Grief is not a sign of weakness nor a lack of faith. It is the price of love. Now, you talk about taking up an apprenticeship with sorrow. What does this entail? Well, I think partly what it assumes is that uh, grief is not a um, something that we encounter periodically. I think it's around us all the time. And for us to really be able to process it and to stay uh, connected to life, we have to take up this apprenticeship so that we don't get submerged whenever it takes on a more acute phase. And the apprenticeship itself requires several things. One of them is coming into a right relationship with sorrow. Frequently what happens is that uh, when grief comes near us, whether it's personal grief or collective grief, we push it away and keep it at, at arm's length. Or sometimes it is so intense that we end up drowning in it. Neither one of these responses allows us to really metabolize sorrow into something meaningful or useful. So the first step is to come into right relationship with, with grief, with sorrow, like a companion, a difficult one, but nonetheless it is always there. So it's best to come into some kind of ongoing relationship with it. The second part of, the, of that apprenticeship is, is the developing some kind of practice that allows you to remain fairly steady when the winds are fierce. In other words, uh, practices are a form of ballast. They give us something steady in our depths when grief comes, when loss comes, um, so we're not tossed about like a cork on the water. And the third part of that apprenticeship is really trying to do your best, our best, to anchor ourselves in our adult presence when grief comes around. I've seen this many times in my practice and in the grief rituals that frequently what will happen to someone is that when grief arises, it oftentimes triggers uh, wounds from childhood and we'll slip, we'll slip into a childish response to our grief. We'll, we'll become terrified. We will feel overwhelmed. We'll panic. Um, and our work is to really make sure that we, we migrate who's carrying the grief and who's responding to the grief from that child part of us to the adult part of us. And this requires a lot of awareness and uh, attention. Otherwise, again, we will, uh, when it slides into the child's hands, there's no one really present to really change that grief into something nourishing for ourselves or the community. Yeah, I'm going to ask you a little bit more about this uh, in, in a few minutes. But, um, you know, it, it sounds from your writing and from what you've said on, on, on the Lifeboat Hour in the past that, that you feel it's an individual's duty to mourn. Um, I'm wondering if you'd say more about that. Well, I think about um, what's going on in our culture and in the planetary circumstances. And it is only the one, it's only the individual who has kept their heart open that has the capacity to really meaningfully respond to this and not simply react to it, either frightened or, or defensively. So when I say it's our duty to mourn, it's really a spiritual obligation to keep the heart soft and fluid and responsive to the world and to the culture. The generations that are coming need it. The creatures of the planet need it. The plants and the trees need it. They need our hearts to really stay as open and responsive as possible. 
And one of the only ways I really see that happening right now is by becoming very knowledgeable and fluent in the rites and traditions of, of grief. So that's really what I mean by it. it's, it's, our, it's our duty to mourn. It's our duty to keep turning into the world as it is and not be caught up in anesthetization and distraction as a way of kind of dimming and uh, dulling what's really happening around us. It's another way of saying being present to what's happening around us and being present to our lives and to each other. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, that really requires us to uh, embrace the full range of of our experience, which includes uh, beauty, love, joy, uh, connection. But right now it's also including a high degree of loss and sorrow and that's the edge we often turn, we often turn away from, and that's right. when we can't be present. Right. Yeah. Well, um, I, I agree with uh, Canadian author Stephen Jenkinson, who's been called the Grief Walker. A movie has been made about him called The Grief Walker. Um, he says that what we need most right now are skilled practitioners of grief. What do you think? Absolutely, I think you know. That, that's why I'm talking about this as an apprenticeship. It's not something you master quickly. It is, as Stephen said, grief is not just an emotion. It is also a skill. And we need people who are skillfully able to walk into that territory and come back with something. Like I say, it's, this is not something we're simply trying to endure to get through. Grief has a profound way of altering the depth of who we are. And so that skill, that capacity to really walk into that territory and then do the hard work of of change and metabolizing that, that's what we're really required to do right now. Uh, Again, the word grief, as I say in the book, comes from gravis, which means heavy. And we get many words from that. We get grief, um, grave, we get gravity, gravid, but we also get gravitas. I think that's partly what Stephen's talking about. It's part of what I'm talking about and you are talking about. Is we need people who have been willing to walk into that space, do the hard work, and come out changed, deepened, ripened as human beings. In some ways, I don't think we mature as a human being without some prolonged engagement with sorrow. So uh, one of the things that you say... Um, is that we should incorporate grief rituals into American culture, which you refer to in your book as uh, rugged individualism. And recently on this show, our friends Barry and Maya Spector came on to talk about grief and their annual Day of the Dead ritual in the Bay Area. Um, And as you know, Barry has written in his book, Madness at the Gates, The Myth of American Innocence, that because we believe ourselves as a culture, Uh, you know, innocent of so many things of which we're guilty, we have little capacity to grieve. And I wonder if you tie this in with the rugged individualism in which our culture is so steeped. Well, if we were sane, we would have grief rituals every month someplace in our communities. But because we are so, as you say, ensnared in the idea of individualism, we tend to privatize our experience so much so that we don't even know we need or require to have some way of communally addressing these sorrows. The longer we hold it privately, the more we hold it individually, the more we feel, in a sense, um, incapable of truly setting our grief down, of really working it, into again, into something nourishing for self or, or community. So that individualism, that privatizing of our experience, in a sense, prohibits our movement into some larger context for seeing the the value of grief. Yeah. I want to let everyone know that I'm speaking tonight with psychotherapist and author Francis Weller, a man whom I consider the foremost 
age of grief and grief work in the United States and author of a fabulous new book, The Wild Edge of Sorrow. I highly recommend this book to you, which I had the pleasure of endorsing and writing a review for. And you can find out all about the book as well as contact Francis at his website, FrancisWeller.net. That's W-E-L-L-E-R, FrancisWeller.net. Well, Francis, you say that when grief remains unexpressed, it hardens and becomes solid like a stone, and that, therefore, uh, we stop moving in rhythm with the soul. Can you speak to that? Uh, you know, what I, I like to imagine is that human beings are more verb than the noun. Mm. I think we're meant to be more a rhythm, a movement, a dance, a song, a poem, than a rigid thing. But when we resist the movement of certain emotions, like like pain, like grief, like sorrow, we begin to become more static. We begin to become more rigid, and our, and our movements begin to cease. And you can feel that. There's a certain rigidity in certain people when they have, you know, choicefully or not, consciously or not, uh, shut down the room of, the, of those more difficult places. I was coming back from a men's retreat with uh, a dear friend of mine, Richard, and he asked me, so Francis, are you happy? And I thought about it for a moment. I said, well, I'm more alive now than ever. I have moments of happiness for which I'm grateful, but I'm also sad a lot. I'm also angry at times. I'm lonely at times. What I want is to be alive, I said to him. And each of these emotions has vitality in them. And I don't want to, I said, I, I stopped giving up. I, I, I given up trying to be happy because when I wasn't, I thought I was doing something wrong because happiness is the new kind of goal in Western right. culture right now, which I think is really quite a travesty. But what I want is to be alive, and these feelings have tremendous vitality in them. And so... Um, that's what I'm trying to say about about grief, and and in the sense that we we can stay much more fluid and much more rhythmic when we allow all of the emotions to touch us. Well, you know, as you know, um, I also do grief workshops and rituals, and invariably, when people are curious about them and considering signing up. Um, they ask what kind of grief we're going to focus on. Will it be personal grief, grief for the planet, grief from losing a loved one? And invariably, I refer them to what you call the five gates of grief because all forms of grief are interconnected. So I, I'd love it if you talk about the five gates of grief a little bit more. Sure. Yeah, I think it's very helpful because we, we don't typically acknowledge the other forms of grief that we carry. And we certainly don't acknowledge it to each other. And the first gate is the only gate that's really honored by other people when we can say, I'm sorry for your loss. And the first gate is the, the losing someone or something that we love. And this is, you know, the, the, a very necessary and very searing form of pain. I just had people at the last grief retreat, you know, who had lost very young children, you know, 20-month-old child and... Uh, the level of pain around this is just inconceivable. It is so profound. And the second gate of grief, <coughs> excuse me, is the um, grief we carry for the parts of us that have not known love. And when we are enculturated in our families and our education systems, our religious systems, and we're taught that certain parts of us are not welcome. Sometimes it is the sad part of us that's not welcomed, or the joyful part, or the sensuous part of us and so we have to cut these parts off from our conscious relationship to self and every one of those becomes a place of loss but we were also taught by that very movement that these parts of us are unacceptable that they're wrong so we begin to judge them and have contempt for them and now we're in this predicament of having an experience of loss but not being able to grieve it because of judgment and contempt that's what I see in my practice all the time is people coming in with these uh, kind of what I call outcast sisters and brothers that they cannot grieve but are at the source of a lot of their sorrow. The third gate we've already alluded to, I think, is the sorrows of the world. 
And this is what comes to us every day in the news, uh, whether it's we just heard about the massive uh, killings in Turkey and uh, the heartbreak of that, and but also the daily losses of animals and you know, on the roadkill that I, I drive past every day, you know, our hearts break um, to hear the news of species decline or the disappearance of polar caps and the, uh, the emptying of the oceans of fish. These are all profound losses that touch us every day, whether we acknowledge it or not, but we are diminished as a consequence. A fourth gate of grief was one that I was rather surprised to uncover, but I heard it over and over again in the grief gatherings, which has to do with what we expected when we arrived here and did not receive. In other words, we are wired genetically as part of our inheritance to express, to, ex- to expect that we will have the same experience as our deep-time ancestors. R.D. Lang said we arrive here as Stone Age children, Another, we're, what we're expecting is some type of village encounter. And that means when we get up in the morning, we expect to you know, have 40 or 50 pairs of eyes looking back at us and wondering what we dreamt last night. And, and that we expected to be sharing meals every day, not just you know, on a rare occasion. We expected to do rituals together of sorrow and grief when something has you know, happened in the village but we also expected to have celebrations of thanksgiving and gratitude, healing rituals. We expected to sit under the stars at night and around the fire and listen to the stories. Almost none of that took place. And consequently, there's this profound emptiness at the heart of most of us, which is not personal, but rather an emptiness where something should have been encountered. And the last gate I call ancestral grief. And that's the grief that we all inherit as well from uh, multiple sources of loss uh, that occurred in our ancestors' generation, but also what we've inherited from what a lot of our ancestors did when they arrived on this continent, which was to decimate an indigenous population, to import slavery, and to radically alter the environment. All of that is still persisting in our psyches. And you can see it and hear about it on a daily basis in terms of racial tensions and the unfinished business of reparations for for all that we've done. So those are the five gates of grief. And it doesn't matter which one is touched. They all lead to what I call the great hall of sorrows that we all share. Well, I'm thinking particularly of ancestral grief um, at the moment. Uh, This month we celebrated, quote-unquote, Columbus Day. Post offices and banks were closed. Um, And many people around the country and the world uh, have turned it into the celebration of Indigenous Peoples Day. Um, I think that's wonderful. And I just have to go back to something Barry Spector said when he was on the show, which was, you know, can we imagine uh, how wonderful it would be if we had a football stadium full of people and the President of the United States down in the center with uh, four or five Native American elders and the President gets on his knees and apologizes to them for what white Americans, white Europeans did to the native peoples who lived here. And then I like to think, as part of my image, I like to think that that would be followed by a a pardon of someone like Leonard Peltier, you know, uh, to put some real real teeth into it. Um, So, yeah, this hall of sorrows that you're talking about is so enormous. Mm, It truly is. It truly is which is one of the reasons why it's, it's virtually impossible for us to try to, on our own, encounter it. And so we wisely shut down. I mean, there's a, there's a wisdom to our, to our numbing and our avoidance. Right. Because we have been conditioned to try to face this in our isolation, and it is just way too much for us to do privately. Yeah, and I emphasize this all the time, that this is work that we absolutely cannot do alone. We've got to have community support and people grieving with us in a, in a village kind of situation. 
It does so many things when that happens, doesn't it, Carolyn? I mean, one of the biggest things is that it, it really affirms something so innate and, in, I think, instinctual in the, in the psyche, which is that we've always done this together. We've never in our long history as a species done this privately. And so to be weeping side by side with a brother or a sister, it, it repairs something fundamental in our psychic lives, you know, the thing that, that's been really distorted and, uh, and forgotten has a great chance of being repaired all on its own, which is a profound you know, uh, addition. Not only are we grieving and allowing that to, to be released, but we're also repairing something fundamental to what it means to be human. Well, you know, uh, sometimes even when people really understand that, um, you know, in a grief ritual they'll be held by others, they'll they'll be supported, and they won't have to do this alone, sometimes um, because they know they're carrying so much and maybe even more grief than they're aware of, um, they tell me, and I know they tell you, that they're afraid that if they begin opening that huge backlog of grief, they'll never stop grieving and they'll go crazy or they'll become unable to function. But you write that two things are required to fully let go of the grief we carry, containment and release. Why is this important for people who are afraid to begin letting the grief out? Well, I think part of the reason we have so much fear is that we've never felt adequately contained. You know, right. that uh, many of us encountered grief early on in our life and throughout our lives in which we were, again, forced to face it privately. That's not an adequate containment field. That's way too small. And so I'm stuck with trying to do two jobs simultaneously. I'm trying to contain it and release it, and I can't do both at the same time. So what I end up doing is becoming a permanent containment field for sorrow. Mm-hmm. And so now all of the sorrows that I've encountered in my lifetime tend to begin to back up, and now they're congesting my, my, my life, my heart, my soul. And so what we need you know, is to begin to build faith again that grief is not here to take us hostage. It's not here trying to overwhelm us. It actually is trying to help us mend and heal but we need a larger container for that to occur. We cannot do it alone. We cannot do it in private. We can do some of the work. I, I, I tend to speak in absolutes there. But <laughs> what I mean is that I think at some point, even if we are very introverted, we will need witnessing. We will need someone to help us hold this so we can do the simple task, the only task, of releasing and not simultaneously trying to hold on to it. One of the terms, Francis, that you talk about in your book um, and other places is intervulnerability. What does that mean? Well, that's a term I get from Marion Wood, uh, Greenspan in her book. Uh, uh, healing, healing Through, through the, the Dark Emotions. Yeah, Healing Through the Dark Emotions. Yeah. And I really liked it. She speaks about... Um, that we are all in this together. There is no such thing as, uh, again, the, the privatized pain. Uh, but the entry of vulnerability means that we are all so enmeshed in our mutual salvation that we have to lean into this much more thoroughly. We'll either do it collectively or we will not make it. Now, there has to be some realization that your pain is my pain. When we talk about it at the grief rituals, we say, as we, after we finish going around the circle to see what people have brought, we say, okay, this is our communal cup. This is ours. They, the shape of the grief might be different from person to person, but we all know sorrow, and we all know loss. And so we are here today to try, this weekend, to try to empty our communal cup a little bit. That's a part of it, too, is that uh, you know, the fear of entering that space of grief has really uh, come from that feeling of it having no bottom. I think I write about that as well in the book. That mm-hmm. yeah. We don't trust that uh, our encounter with grief will actually lead us someplace. It'll just be free fall. And so when people come to the grief gatherings, there's often a lot of fear, as you've, I'm sure, encountered. 
But slowly over the course of the weekend, they begin to see other people touch it, feel it, express it, and still stay present and not disappear, not go into free fall. We begin to have a little bit more faith. And that's why I love ritual is that it's not a one-shot deal. It's not a you know, kind of a drive-by event. You do it <laughs> over and over and over again. Yeah. And uh, then you can really begin to have some strong faith and a deep sense of its uh, capacity to hold you and to help you do what you need to do within that, within that time. Well, you write a great deal about ritual, and you've been practicing it for years. Um, I know that you are, are one, of, one of the rituals you're talking about is the grief weekend ritual. Are there other rituals that, uh, that you are referring to or that you sometimes use? Well, we use a variety depending on what the circumstance is. Um, we, can do, we do often do what we call a stone ritual where we, uh, with smaller groups of people in the shorter time period, where we create a bowl, a shrine in the middle of the, of the circle with a bowl of water, a large bowl of water, and many small stones, little, you know, 50-cent um, piece-sized stones around the bowl. And people come to the middle and pick up a stone and name the particular grief they're carrying and, and uh, then place it in the water. And over time, as people come and share their many stories and experiences of grief and put it in the water, you begin to see this, again, this is our sorrow. This is our collective uh, mourning that we're doing. And then that water is taken out and, and fed to the earth and to the trees and to the plants. And, um, so there's many ways that we can do the grief work, many different forms to it. And, and I also I always encourage people to, to kind of create their own. Right. Uh, you don't have to depend upon... Uh, someone offering a grief ritual and I often say at the beginning of our gatherings it is very strange that we are here today uh, coming to a grief workshop or listening to a grief lecture um, it seems that we have classes and programs and workshops on all the things that we have forgotten to do so we have classes and workshops on play on, on relationships on the creativity on sexuality you know these are all the things that we've seemed to have forgotten which is, again, deep part of our grief, isn't it? Well, there's another ritual that you're having soon, I think, and it's an annual ritual for you uh, around Thanksgiving time. Can you say oh, more yes. about that? Yeah. I mean, what, one of the things we talk about is that the mark of a mature man or a mature woman is to carry grief in one hand and gratitude in the other. Mm, yeah. So we have embodied that as best we can here locally by having our grief rituals, but also having our gratitude rituals. It's very important for us to gather together and say thank you. You know, dark though it is, as, as uh, Merwin's, as W.S. Merwin says, uh, we have to keep saying thank you, even just yeah. for this breath, for this day, for this time, for this opportunity to serve, to be part of yeah. what's going on. So every year for the past 15 years, we've uh, gathered the weekend before Thanksgiving and held this gorgeous uh, community gratitude ritual with children. We have children there who have been there since in utero, have never missed a one. They've been there wow. all, all 14 years. And, you know, and uh, these kids know and have been raised in the village. And this is the mm. closest we get to being in villages, this, um, this time together, singing and poetry and we create this extraordinarily beautiful gratitude shrine and make offerings. And, uh, and then we take the, the offerings that we've made and on Sunday take them out into an opening in the earth and feed her belly for, for once. And we are an extraordinarily extractive culture. So once a year at least we try to put something back into her belly to keep her green and keep her alive. And It's... Um, it's extraordinarily beautiful, and it does help to hold the grief. Once again, folks, I'd like to remind you that I'm talking with author and psychotherapist Francis Weller, facilitator of incredibly powerful grief rituals, a man who is skilled and is really a compassionate grief guide in these times of unprecedented sorrow and loss. 
So, Francis, for those folks who don't know anything about grief rituals, can you describe a little bit about what a grief ritual looks like? Sure. Well, it has several components. One of them is that uh, we spend a few days what I call composting. In other words, we it's hard to grieve on demand, especially when many of our strategies are of trying to... Uh, remain uh, detached or distant from our grief. So it takes time to work the ground. And we use writing practices and singing and movement to help to loosen the soil, to help get it softened. And then when we come to Sunday afternoon, we actually uh, engage the direct ritual itself. The ritual looks something like we have a... People brought objects, photographs, things to speak to what they're grieving, and we create a beautiful grief shrine. And then we teach them a song, and uh, we drum, and people then go down to the shrine when they feel moved and are ready to, to, to weep, to grieve, to mourn, to express their outrage. But they never go down to the shrine alone. They're always accompanied. And this, again, is one of those healing modalities that, and you can hear it when we describe it to the people in the room of how the ritual is going to proceed, that you will never be alone at the shrine. There's this audible gasp, like, really? <laughs> I'm going to be witnessed? I'm yeah. going to be seen? It's, it's like you can feel the tremendous loneliness we carry around our sorrow, just how, just how burdened we've been by our solitude so yes so you go down to the shrine but you're always with somebody someone's always there just to just to hold space for you they're not there to interact with you to touch you to talk to you unless you as the griever need that and the griever can ask for whatever they need hands on the back uh, on, uh, on the shoulders uh, they can ask to have you know uh, to lean back into their body and it's so beautiful to see people really begin to release and to relax into their grief, knowing that they're being cared for. And then they, uh, when they're done with that wave, since this is not a, a place to just linger, you come back to the village and you are welcomed back. Another part of the reparation is this feeling of being received when you come back to the village. And... Uh, you are welcomed and thanked for what you did down there. People saw you, they felt you, they appreciated, and they would get whispered in their ear, thank you for doing that hard, hard work. You helped to empty our communal cup. Thank you. And part of what we talk about, too, is that uh, not everyone's going to grieve on that day, but that everyone is necessary for the grieving to occur. This is what I call thinking like a village. Mm-hmm. You know, it may not be my day to grieve, and but I was there to support you. And if I really do think that this is our communal grief, I go away feeling better. I feel right. lighter even if I wasn't one of the active grievers that day. I was still in the field that was emptying grief. And that's a profoundly different way of thinking than, uh, well, I didn't, I didn't get to do my work today. Right. No, we did our work today, and we are better off. Our community is better off. Our children are better off. Maybe even the salmon are better off because we did what we did today. Mm-hmm. And we go as long as, long as we need to. Um, there's no limit to how many times you can go down to the shrine. And some people you know, have a real rhythm of going down, coming back, going down and coming back. And the ritual usually lasts two to three hours, and then we... Uh, you know, thank each other for this deep work, and we thank the ancestors, and we thank whatever mystery was there to help us do this, because we know that in some ways we can't do this alone. We can't even do this simply with the human community. It really requires some connection to something larger and uh, lacking any name that I can give it other than mystery. So... um Certainly there are some fears among folks, <clears throat> excuse me, that if we show our emotional pain, we won't be seen. 
Um, do you see that with your clients or people in the grief rituals? <clears throat> oh, absolutely. I think that's one of the fundamental wounds around grief is that it wasn't acknowledged and wasn't valued and, uh, and validated. So it, it definitely comes up, and we address it, uh, I think, in partly by the structure of the, of the ritual itself, but also when I talk about and, and uh, teach about bringing the adult present. This, this last one, I was up in Victoria, Canada, and, and um, a few people, could, you could visibly see them sliding into a very young, childlike state when the grief was nearby. And the expectation in that experience is that no one's going to see me, no one's going to be here for me, I'm on my own. But when I named that in the circle, and I asked them, could you say something like, that child part of me that the girl doesn't expect to be seen, and they did that, you could see their face return to the present moment. Mm -hmm. And the whole room could acknowledge that. And, and you know, you're so right. I mean, the expectation, I think, is really oftentimes that no one will be here, and I will be once again left in my room alone with my sorrows. But if we can name that part of us, and in a sense welcome that peace into the room, rather than having it take us out of the room, then we have a chance to heal. Then we have a chance to really do the work we came there to do. Well, you know, um, we're kind of coming down to the end of our time, but I, I want you to talk a little bit, if you would, about the price we pay uh, as a culture, but, but very much as individuals, if we don't grieve, if we don't um, feel and befriend our, our different emotions. What are, what are the health issues, for example, that are associated with the denial of our emotions? Well, I mean, think about the number one cause of death in this culture is congestive heart failure. Mm. And I don't think our hearts are purely congested from our diets or from smoking. I think they're congested from our unmetabolized sorrows and maybe even our unexpressed love. Mm. You know, so when we refuse to grieve, I think it closes the aperture of the heart. It, I think it even you know, has a physiological effect of shutting us down and making us become more uh, vulnerable to the things that uh, debilitate us. They did an interesting study in a little town in Pennsylvania um, in the 50s and 60s that, that actually had a 50-year uh, range of study because this town had the lowest heart disease rates of all the communities around it. And they couldn't figure out why. They checked for smoking and diet and exercise and access to health care, and nothing could explain it. And this was a very intact Italian mining community. And then in the 60s, um, people began to say they wanted to live outside of town, on the suburbs. They didn't want to live in extended family units of grandparents and uncles and cousins, and they began to have single-family households. And the young children began to say, you know, I want to move to Berkeley or I want to go to New York City. And the social fabric began to tear. And guess what happened to the heart disease rates? Right. They shot up not only to the average but above normal. So there's something really about the protective value of contact and connection that is so essential to the heart and to our well-being and to our health. And that means keeping the heart open. And that means being able to, change, you know, to take whatever comes into our field, whether it's love, beauty, kindness, compassion, or sorrow, loss, death, and be able to really uh, keep showing up to do that to do the deep work of whatever life is asking from us. 
So we're almost out of time, but um, there's a quote uh, from a book, Letting Go, and I'm not sure who wrote that book, but, but you like to often finish up with this quote. So would you go ahead and give it to us and tell us who wrote the book, Letting Go, as well? Mm, I'm drawing a blank on that one. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> and then I'm not alone in not knowing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, do you remember the quote to the start of it? Every loss we experience? No. Well, I'll go ahead and read it. Every loss we experience in our lifetime has the capacity to deepen us, to widen the channel of soul life flowing into us. As we become familiar with sorrow and ease our resistance to its bittersweet tincture in our lives, we simultaneously become more able to love this astonishing world. Even as we recognize our own inevitable ending, There arises a feeling of gratitude, of grace, that we have been gifted with this time, these particular people, and this astonishing planet. Well, that's my passage. I wrote that. Okay, okay. (laughs) That's from from, uh, your new book, correct? Yes, yes. Okay, Okay. all right. Good, Good quote, though. Yeah, yeah, I like, yeah, that was a pretty smart guy who wrote that. Yeah. Well, Francis, I really want to thank you for being on the Lifeboat Hour with us tonight, and thank you for the incredible work you do in the world. Well, Carolyn, I would just mirror that back to you. I think it's going to take all of us, many of us, doing this and, and, and offering uh, avenues through this type of practice of ritual and community to, and to make any inroad on what's, uh, what's coming our way. And thank you for doing all that you're doing, the radio show and your talks and your writings. And um, We are blessed to have you. Well, we're blessed to have each other, Francis, and I can't wait to see you when I'm in Northern California. And uh, I want to thank all of our listeners for joining us. And please do get a copy of The Wild Edge of Sorrow, Rituals of Renewal and the Sacred Work of Grief. Thank you, Francis. Thank you, and- Carolyn. Good night, everyone. Everybody knows the deal is rotten. Old Black Joe's still picking cotton for your ribbons and bows. Everybody knows that the dice are loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. Everybody knows the war is over. Everybody knows the good guys lost. Everybody knows the fight was fixed. The poor stay poor. The rich get rich. That's how it goes. Everybody knows Everybody knows the boat is leaking Everybody knows the captain lied Everybody got this broken feeling Like their father or their dog just died Everybody Talking to their pockets Everybody wants a box of chocolates And a long stem root Everybody knows Everybody knows that you love me, baby Everybody knows you really do Everybody knows you've been faithful Give or take a night or two Everybody knows you've been discreet But there were so many people you just had to meet Without your clothes Everybody knows Everybody knows Everybody knows